Hello and welcome to Media Literate, a collaborative podcast that our producer Sebastian said he, quote, probably would not listen to if he weren't working on it. I'm Kim Henry, and despite our podphobic friend Sebastian, I'm excited to introduce what is probably my favorite episode of the show by far. Which is saying something, because I'm not even in this one. This week, hosts Laura, Victor, and Sebastian, yes, that same Sebastian, debate the relevance of the numbered cinema model. What's that, you ask? It's the string that ties together French New Wave cinema, Marvel's Thor Ragnarok, and Marxist revolutionaries. By which I mean to say, our hosts will explain it very soon. A quick note before we begin. We recorded this episode at the very beginning of the winter storm in Texas, where Victor is calling in from. This was before the scale of the crisis in Texas was clear to us, so we apologize for taking a casual tone toward it. If you're in Texas right now, we hope you've found somewhere to stay safe and warm. Now, without further ado, this week's episode of Media Literate. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Media Literate, the podcast where a group of overwhelmed grad students try to answer the big and sometimes not so big questions of media studies. Yeah. My name is Sebastian Wirtschweiner. Joining me today is Victor Wu. Hi, I'm Victor. Uh, I'm currently freezing my ass off because I'm in the middle of an Arctic blast. Uh, I live in Texas, but it's like <laughs> 10 degrees right now. And like my power has been going out in and out like for the past couple of days. So I will be freezing during the duration of this podcast. So just keep that in mind while you're listening to me. I think we're all in snowy weather right now, aren't we? Yeah, I don't like it. I, I wouldn't have thought that I'd be one of those people in like, who's going to go to LA because I hate the winter. Because as like a northerner, this is like one of the things that shapes my identity. Like, oh, you think 30 degrees is cold. <laughs> I, I've lived through negative 100, but um, here I am in Wisconsin and I'm just so tired of the cold. <laughs> oh, I'm Laura. I'm Laura Broman. I'm I, was here just, too. I was supposed to introduce you and say, you know, joining us also is Laura Broman, but I guess we just... <laughs> right that was enough of an introduction for me. <laughs> oh, okay. This oh, is... wait, they've met me before. They oh, have God. met you before. <laughs> this is this is going <laughs> great, great already, <laughs> truly. Um, yeah, no, this is great. I'm so happy to be talking to you guys today. Uh, our topic is the numbered cinema model and whether or not it is so relevant or valuable. So before we try to like delve into what any of that actually means, um, <laughs> we're going to begin as we always do with the fun BuzzFeed quiz. To, to fun, yes. I don't know, I guess fun is all relative here. I had fun. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. It's, I find BuzzFeed quizzes are always deeply amusing. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they always are amusing in the way they intend to be, but I, I, <laughs> I, I get a certain degree of joy out of them. So the, <laughs> so the problem with today's topic is that um, <laughs> BuzzFeed doesn't really have quizzes about numbered cinema. And I know this because I Googled it and BuzzFeed appears to have quizzes about everything, but not <laughs> this topic, which probably says something about, um, I don't know, it's, it's current relevance or kind of- I would <laughs> love to find a BuzzFeed quiz that's like, which, which you know, Marxist 
post-colonial revolutionary are you? <laughs> you know? I, I love Victor's idea when we were doing the prep for this and he was like, oh, BuzzFeed should have a quiz where it'll say like, oh, you're fifth cinema or you're first cinema, like <laughs> matching you with your, I don't know, I think that'd be hysterical. So the quiz we've settled on is, it's titled Research Shows these are 13 countries people struggle to identify in a map. Can you guess even half of them right? And the reason we picked this is because it's a geography quiz and the numbered cinema model sort of has to do with geography or geopolitics. It does. Or does yeah. it? I mean, I guess we should... <laughs> that's, Whoa. What we, that's what we'll discuss. And you said today. there weren't relevant BuzzFeed quizzes. Come on. Exactly. So <laughs> right. it's just, it's basically just a list of like 13 countries in a map. You have to actually name the country um, and see if you get it right. So how did you all do? I did really bad. I got seven out of 13. I <clears throat> do not know where anything is in the world. That's me. What was your percentage with seven out of 13? Was it like percentage? Just oh. over 50% if my math. Uh, I, yeah, I guess that's over 50%. It said I scored better than 32% of quiz teachers. Oh, that's, so that's what it scored. That's really oh, yeah. impressive. That's right. It doesn't... I mean, uh, exactly. That's great. Did, what did BuzzFeed tell you at the end? Because I'll say right now, I, I got 63%. So I, it was 9 out of 13. And it says to me, wow, you really know your countries. Dare I say, you're a bit of a geography expert. Congratulations on acing this quiz and keeping your passport. <gasps> Which I, I'm going to be honest... <laughs> Uh, getting nine out of 13 right, I do not feel like, like, it says I scored better than 63% of quiz takers. I don't think that qualifies in, as any sort of extra status. Like, I think that's, I, I think that's you, you passed. Can I just say, yeah, that's, that's a D. That's a tidy little D right there. Exactly. I, I had the same, like, blurb as you, but I got 12 out of 13 right. What? And yeah, what? I'm actually, this is good because I felt so, BuzzFeed made me feel so inadequate after that film canon one I took. But um, uh, yeah, I, I did pretty well. And they said that they had the same blurb for me. So fine. What, what blurb did they have? Some, Victor? Yeah, Victor, what did, you, what did they say for you? I have like this animated GIF. GIF? 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 Okay, GIF. Uh, of, of RuPaul saying better work. Um, it says, okay, I see you. You certainly know some of your countries, but the trickier one slipped by you. Wow, that's so shady. <laughs> um, yeah, this is very BuzzFeed. This is very rude. Why are we being, why are we so conditioned to like <laughs> appeal for like BuzzFeed's approval? Why does this matter to us? Why do I like feel validated by BuzzFeed telling me that I'm a geography expert? <laughs> I think this is hysterical for you because it really is validating you in that front because you, what did you, 12 out of 13? Yeah, then they like, come in and tell Sebastian who got it, a D student in this case, that he got the same like level as me. <laughs> I, I, I thought I won the country contest. I didn't, I didn't get... Uh, I didn't get Uzbekistan. That was the one that I missed. I'm so sorry to our Uzbeki list listeners. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Laura will now like take a whole, I don't know, course on Uzbekistan yeah. and, and come back to you for a later Just... episode. <laughs> this is my origin story right here. <laughs> I, I feel like this actually segues nicely into sort of like discussing how this quiz relates to our topic because mm. I find it really interesting like what countries BuzzFeed determines are like quote-unquote unknown basically mm -hmm. uh, because I was looking at the list and so again it's 13 countries that it provides here and 
three of them are either in North America or in Europe. They've got mm-hmm. Canada, Poland, and Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And then everywhere else is either in South America, Africa, or Asia. I, I might be I might be wrong right. with this because you guys took it a little bit after right. I did. They're assuming that like if you're taking it, you're not from like Southern Africa, where two of the questions are like from. Because you probably presumably if you're from like uh, South Africa, you know where Angola and Madagascar are. Um, or maybe you don't. I don't want to assume. Yeah, uh, I mean that's there's fair people pet geography all over the world. <laughs> That's true. I just did find it interesting, like, it does feel like it's written from a decidedly, like, American and kind of Western-centric perspective, but I guess it's not, like, oh, the 100%. Most, most surprising thing with BuzzFeed, necessarily. Um, mm-hmm. And I do find that the inclusion of Canada is kind of amusing, that, like, they're assuming that as American audiences taking this quiz that we won't know what our, where our neighbors are. No, no. I think that what it is is that they want to start you off feeling nice and confident. So you're like, oh, I know where Canada is. Yes. And that's just like, you feel good about yourself. And then you get down to <clears throat> Uzbekistan. That's so I'm so true. sorry. I got, it, I got it mixed up with Azerbaijan. <sighs> <laughs> oh, Laura. Uh, I know. Oh, God. <laughs> I love that I love that Uzbekistan is now unexpectedly going to play this key role in your <laughs> your trajectory as a I don't know an MA student and film scholar. Is yes. Great... Yes. I, I I you know what I don't know much about Uzbeki. Is it Uzbeki is that the uh demonym? I'm god, this is not even on topic, but <laughs> the films from the country of Uzbekistan, I don't know much about them and maybe I should as penance. I'm looking at now. I was gonna say we need to include that in more film history syllabi, um, which actually, again, also segues us very nicely into today's yes. because we were discussing uh, the sort of Western-centric nature of this BuzzFeed's, BuzzFeed quiz and its notions about mm-hmm. geography. And that's kind of, this sort of ties into what the numbered cinema model is and mm-hmm. what, how it developed and what it's pushing back against originally. So Victor, do you want to sort of jump into that and explain a little kind of quickly what what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. I'll just, by the way, it's Uzbek, not Uzbeki. Good to know. <laughs> I know that you really care. <laughs> I, it's good to know, actually. Yeah, yeah. Like this um, BuzzFeed quiz, it's very Eurocentric. So I guess in the context of cinema, uh, we would say that, you know, this is <laughs> what's called first cinema, which is basically cinema that comes out of Hollywood and it's like just like this BuzzFeed quiz it's like very Eurocentric it assumes that you're like this American like capitalist kind of neo-colonialist person Uh, and I guess this whole concept of first cinema comes from this one article called Towards a Third Cinema which is basically uh, a movement uh, that began in Latin America in 1967 with a strong like anti-colonial emphasis. Um, And these two writers called Solanus and Jatino, they wrote towards a third cinema. Uh, So first cinema, as we've talked about is Hollywood. Second cinema is uh, European art house films. So unlike, you know, Hollywood films, they're more like art housey and they're more art for art's sake. Uh, they operate, you know, within the system's distribution change. So it mm-hmm. still doesn't, you know, it's it's still capitalist in a lot of ways. And then third cinema is like this like special new category that 
uh, Solanus and Giottino came up with. And it basically rejects the view of cinema as a vehicle for personal expression. And it sees, you know, the director as being part of a collective, it appeals to the mass, to the proletariat, to the popular class. And then it tries to inspire some revolutionary activism. Can I just say, by the way, that I love the category, like, I feel like the second cinema people would absolutely hate being categorized as second cinema, because like, both, it's like both the like, you're not in first place, like first cinema is still like mainstream Hollywood, but like, you're not edgy enough to be like, on the end, you're like the hyphen, you're, it's just like, I, and I feel like they would hate that, like the, these are like the French New Wave people that, like, you can't talk about even negatively without just sounding pretentious. So uh, I just love that they're, they're pretty, they're, you know, it's second, it's second place, it's like the first loser. That's so great. That was kind of the joke I, I made the other day when we were talking about this, where I was saying that like, I, my, my numbered cinema hot take is that I have the, probably the most disrespect for second cinema because it's non-committal <laughs> because like, like I, like I hate like the kind of capitalist neo-colonialist you know, ethos of first cinema, but at least it commits to being awful. And like, at least third cinema commits to its revolutionary ideals, where like second cinema kind of wants to have it both ways. I know yeah. Laura disagrees with me a little bit on this, on this notion, <laughs> but I, I remember ever since I first learned about this kind of framework, I was like, oh man, second cinema, it just does not have its, it just, they just, <laughs> they couldn't commit to the capitalism. Um, I don't want to be put in the position of defending like, the the art house of like the french new wave because they're just indefensible at times but uh in just how it's just funny because literally i was like saying like two weeks ago i was arguing that like you should watch the 400 blows and uh breathless because they're like important canon films but like i was lying I love how that conversation went. I was not expecting Kim to to decide that no, in fact, yeah. we should watch this. I think what's interesting is that uh, reading Solanus and Gatino's Towards the Third Cinema essay, they don't necessarily like suggest that a fourth and fifth and sixth cinema will come after this, mm -hmm. but the essay doesn't preclude that either. And so a variety of people have, have tried to kind of develop subsequent modes of cinema. And the one that's like, the only one that so far has really stuck is in 2003, Barry Barclay, who's a Maori filmmaker from New Zealand, wrote his own manifesto called Celebrating uh, Fourth Cinema. And he defines it, broadly speaking, it's cinema made by indigenous people within indigenous communities. Um, I think like the, a little bit of important context here is that Barclay had been making films pretty much like in the interim basically, because I wanna say Towards the Third Cinema is written in 1969. And then Barclay starts making his own films right after that. And then mm. is kind of continuously developing his approach to what indigenous cinema can look like. And that mm -hmm. leads him over the decades to writing Celebrating Fourth Cinema. And so, for example, he makes uh, in the late 80s, Nati, which is the first film in New Zealand um, that's pretty much entirely made both behind the camera and in front of the camera with uh, Maori cast and crew. Nice. And then I think it's in the 1990s, he writes Our Own Image, which is a book kind of reflecting on his experiences. And so you can't, like, I think it's kind of important just as context because Celebrating for Cinema is very much the culmination of mm -hmm. all of his thinking about this. And so over the years, what he's developed is this idea that you can't really make indigenous films that are trying explicitly to speak out to non-indigenous audiences and try to explain 
indigenous cultures and indigenous practices. Um, mm. and he, as he describes it, basically what always happens is you do that because he started his career with doing like ethnographic work where he was trying to do that, where he was trying to kind of translate his culture to essentially white New Zealanders. And he was uh -huh. like, what always happens is as I'll make these films and the white New Zealanders will just soak them up and they'll love them. And then nothing will change. Like they won't, like policy won't change. They won't mm. learn anything. They'll keep disrespecting us and they'll keep disrespecting our land and our practices. And so he was like, what really needs to happen is we need to talk in with our films. Um, and so that's like kind of the, mm. the cornerstone of fourth cinema is that it's talking in within indigenous communities that instead you're making a film with your, as an indigenous filmmaker, you're making a film with your community and you're uh -huh. addressing their concerns. And so it also, it's a different understanding of kind of like what, like radical and revolutionary filmmaking looks like um, because mm -hmm. it's not nearly as much like fight the system right. as third cinema. Um, and it's also a different notion of what authorship looks like relative to like second cinema, for example, because second cinema and, you know, art house cinema is all about like personal expression. Mm -hmm. And Barclays instead like, no, the job of the director is basically traffic control. Like the job of the director is to get everyone in the community to work together to make this project that will then reflect their concerns and mm -hmm. their interests and so on and so forth. So that's kind of what fourth cinema is. And that I think leads us nicely to the, the first, I, okay, so as we said at the beginning of this, the debate for the episode, broadly speaking is, is this model, this numbered cinema model so relevant? Like, should we mm -hmm. try to develop it? Should we try to consider if a fifth and sixth and seventh cinema are possible or do we need to just throw it out because it's too outdated? Um, and mm -hmm. so I'll be arguing from the position that it is so relevant. Victor will be arguing from the position that it is no longer relevant. And I think that fourth cinema and the way Barclay writes about it segues nicely mm -hmm. into like a, our first subtopic kind of, because the way in which he talks about it raises all these questions about like, what are we really defining here within these broad categories? Um, is it about modes of filmmaking? Um, in the sense that like first cinema, it's basically capitalist studio filmmaking. Is it you know, versus like third cinema, which is guerrilla filmmaking. Like it's, mm -hmm. they have their whole idea about like these guerrilla filmmaking units. Um, and in fourth cinema, it's all about filmmaking within the community or it's about who's making right. it because it's important to Barclay is also that like you're talking about films made by indigenous people. And so mm -hmm. that identity is really important there. Or it's about like, what is it about what the film is about? Um, which he kind of also raises. So there are all these questions about like, what are we actually defining here? And is that right. still applicable and valuable, basically. Definitely. And I think before we continue, I think we should give a summary of the numbers of cinema again, just to remind everyone what they are. So yeah. first cinema, Hollywood. Second cinema, European art house. Third cinema, third world films, third world mm -hmm. people films. And then fourth cinema, indigenous film. Yeah. And I think I'll jump in and say, I don't know as much about this as either of you two. I'm just I'm just here to prove my worth so that when the revolution comes, I'm not executed as a member of the intelligentsia. <laughs> but I'll note that I think that the third cinema people would say that first and second cinema are a little more, not necessarily confined to those two regions necessarily, right? Like second cinema isn't, I mean, a lot of it's the French New Wave, but it's also like, um, I mean, it, it's not necessarily just European art house, right? We could think of American art house or um, mainstream industries in other countries of the world. So I'll note that. And maybe correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think You're that's totally a, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's a great point. We I know all three of us took a class where this topic was addressed last semester. And one of the things that 
our professor raised that I'd never thought of before is that, for example, you could totally have first cinema outside of the American context. Because, like, mm-hmm. when I've been taught it, it's always been super nationally defined that, like, first cinema is explicitly America, second cinema is explicitly Europe, third mm-hmm. cinema is basically everywhere else. It's more <laughs> or less. It's, I mean, it's meant to be in its conception a tricontinental movement, you know, Latin mm-hmm. America, Africa, Asia. Um, and, but, like, she kind of raised this possibility that, like, Bollywood, for example, um, which is the kind of dominant mode of Indian cinema is another example potentially of what first cinema looks mm-hmm. like. Um, and I think that's like, again, it's a really interesting question of like, it's actually really hard to define like what, what is the root of each of these modes basically? Yeah, for sure. So Victor, do you want to delve first into a little bit of your thinking in this? Yeah, mode? definitely. Yeah. In terms of like, you know, how we define what first, second, third cinema is, I think, because, you know, all this numbered cinema concept came out of, you know, the idea of a third cinema, it's important to distinguish third cinema from first and second cinema, not so much to distinguish, you know, first cinema from second cinema, it's always in relationship to this third cinema. And so this third cinema, I would argue, you know, it isn't about how it's made, it isn't about like, who is making it, or even what it's really about, it's about what it does. And I think that's a really important aspect of third cinema. Third cinema is inherently, you know, this Marxist cinema. So it's it's about mm-hmm. not just interpreting the world. Uh, this is a quote from Marx. It's not just sufficient to interpret the world. It is now a question of transforming it. So for a film to be considered a third cinema, it has to not only interpret the world in a way that's Marxist, it also has to move the world forward in a way that's Marxist as well. Mm-hmm. No, I think, that's a, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, and... I think certainly when it comes to third cinema, like the question of what effect it has is probably more important to Solana Singatino mm-hmm. than anything else. I think part of the the issue here is again that that's not necessarily as applicable when you're discussing these other three modes that have been established first, second, and fourth. Um, in the sense, like Barclay, for example, I there there are a lot of different kind of interrelated concerns in his writing but like I think the thing that he probably cares most about is how you make your film and to some extent that's also like how you distribute it um that he cares a lot about that like it's really important you make it with your community you make it with their approval you go through all the right cultural protocols you release your film um you know you like you screen your film for your community like he even wants to advocate for this model that like there shouldn't really be any economic transaction when it comes to exhibiting films. Mm. That, like, I think he, at some points, like, would pay his audiences to watch his film rather than vice versa, basically. So it's, it's for him, again, like, m- how you make it is a lot more important than, like, what's it, what it's about or even, to some extent, like, what effect it has. Um, that it's, again, a lot more about this notion of talking in and kind of communicating internally within your community. And I, so again, like, I think right there, what you and I maybe are kind of getting at is that the third cinema and fourth cinema are predicated on these very different notions. And I think part of the question is like, is the model, is the model still valuable or applicable if like they're actually addressing completely different things? And I would argue, interesting. like it's one of the things like if third cinema is about like as a notion is about one thing about fourth cinema is about something completely different in terms of the sort of basis for the category like what use is the model anyways and my argument would be it is so useful because that sort of flexibility makes it malleable and it's just saying we'll maybe move on to a little bit later is like at, like a lot has changed since Solana Scantino wrote 
their essay. And a lot has even changed mm -hmm. since Barclay wrote his essay. And so, like, again, the filmmaking landscape is so different that if this model is going to survive, it needs to be adaptable and malleable. And I would argue, like, the fact that the way in which we define it is kind of inspecific and vague in places is actually helpful and that it makes it, again, more adaptable, that you can use it in different circumstances and modify it um, throughout yeah. history. So I have a question for you, Sebastian, and, and Victor, if Victor wants to weigh in, I would uh, love to hear Victor's opinion on this, because we have both heard you talk about a certain movie a lot in the context of board <laughs> cinema without ever, like, really giving an explanation on it, because we've been waiting to record this podcast. We're so excited. Um, Sebastian is a big, big fan of the film Thor Ragnarok, uh, and has really? spoken a lot about the context of fourth cinema. I would love to hear a little bit about how like fourth cinema uh, proves or disproves uh, these, the validity of these categories because, and yeah, Victor. And just a reference, right? Like Sebastian has been talking about this, <laughs> like not just recently, but for years. Like I've been hearing this for years and I just, I assumed that I was like missing some part of the Ragnarok, <laughs> but then, you know, Laura said like, oh, I have no idea how it relates to fourth cinema either. So I just felt so, <laughs> so, so uh, redeemed. Okay, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad I could be there for you, Victor. This is a journey we're all going on together. I, I mean, I, I will say, like, I want to say I don't, I'm not about to make the argument that Thor Ragnarok is fourth cinema, kind of plain and simple, like no uh -huh. caveats required. Okay. Uh, this is kind of like part of the argument I was I was going to make at some point in relation to like how the media landscape has changed is that at this point, rather than just completely discard the model, what instead might be helpful in light of like transnational trends in filmmaking right now or like international co-productions is to try to modify the model to imagine high, like hybrid cinema. So to imagine, for example, like what a second, third cinema might look like and how those mm. interact to explain. Like we talked about the movie Parasite, for example, which in some mm. ways sort of draws from like first, second and third cinema in different ways. And so I think like my, my argument would be that like, again, rather than discard the model, I think it's still, it's still a helpful starting point for discussion. So one way to modify it is to imagine these hybrid cinemas. So my argument is that Thor Ragnarok could be seen as a fourth, sorry, a first fourth cinema hybrid. And I want to like be very clear out the start here that like it is for cinema and <laughs> it is absolutely like it's a Marvel film. And, and, and this, is, this is really important. Don't get more first cinema than Marvel. <laughs> like this is this is really important to me to like clarify yeah. because at the in last episode they were talking about Godzilla and Kim made this joke about um, like some crazy conspiracy theory person making the argument that the 2014 Godzilla is actually like a radically anti-imperialist text and I feel a little bit like that person right now yeah. by trying to argument that in relation to Thor Ragnarok so I do want to be clear like it is for cinema and like the person there's like a giant cork board behind Sebastian with like red string like pointing it's that, it's that scene like... from, from it's it's always sunny in Philadelphia absolutely yeah exactly I just I want to like I want to clarify that simply because like absolutely the people who are benefiting most from that the existence of that film is Disney which is like this right. massive awful monopolistic capitalist corporation and I and I hate that mm -hmm. and so I like I want to be clear about that because I'm not trying to argue that it's not that I think that like where I'm coming from in terms of being fourth cinema is that it's directed by uh, Taika Waititi, mm -hmm. who is at this point probably the preeminent Maori filmmaker in the world at the right. moment. And like, it's one of those things, like, in, like, I feel like there's kind of two questions here that 
in relation to this, like, is it an indigenous film and is it an example of fourth cinema? And I think mm -hmm. this is slightly different um, and need to maybe be tackled a little bit differently because like, is it indigenous cinema? My argument is like, absolutely no question. I, like, I, it's not a question in my mind at this point because there's this really interesting interview with YTT where he's talking about his film, What We Do in the Shadows which uh -huh. um, he direct, he co-directed with his friend, Jermaine Clement, who's also Maori. You might say the second greatest vampire film in modern history. I, I might even push and say the, the greatest, though I, I assume your first greatest is Twilight. Obviously, if you want to say New Moon, I mean. Oh, new. okay, maybe New Moon, and then What We Do in the Shadows, and then Twilight. <laughs> gotcha, all right. So in this interview, uh, the interview asks him, you know, is this film an example of Maori cinema? Is it indigenous cinema, given that the protagonists are explicitly from Europe? And mm -hmm. Taika Waititi goes, well, obviously it's, it's a Maori film. Jermaine and I are both Maori. By law uh -huh. of race, it, is, it, is a, it is, a, is a Maori film, partially because it's informed so thoroughly by our identity and cultural background. Um, and there's a, he alludes to the fact there's a whole history of non-indigenous people having very rigid stereotypes about what indigeneity looks like, and therefore uh -huh. saying, okay, this artistic or cultural, you know, or creative work that you're doing, it doesn't seem authentically indigenous to me. So I'm going to say it's not traditional, it's not authentic. And he's like, you, you can't, you can't keep doing that mm. to us. Like we are, we are allowed to make the work that we want that reflects our worldview and our culture. And so I think by that logic, absolutely, th like Thor Ragnarok is unquestioned. It's, it's, it is thoroughly influenced by his background and I think therefore qualifies as indigenous cinema. I think whether or not it's fourth cinema, or at least like a hybrid of fourth cinema is a little bit more complicated simply because there's a whole theoretical apparatus that Barclay attaches to that. So it's not just right. about, is this a film made by an indigenous person, but like, does it, is it, you know, a film made in collaboration with your community? Is it talking in all this other stuff? And that's, I think where this gets a little more tricky, but I'm still going to make the argument that it is. Um, like, I think the most superficial level is the narrative it's as anti-imperialist as I think a Marvel film has probably gotten in the sense that the whole narrative is about like Asgard is an empire that has tried to whitewash its colonialist history. And the film basically concludes with this idea that like empires are so morally indefensible that mm -hmm. you just have to blow them up if you want to make <laughs> forward progress. Like, I, I mean, it's, again, it's a Marvel film. So it's kind of a, like right. it's ridiculous in the way it sort of like metaphorizes these things. But the film right. does end with this giant fire dream in just literally blowing up Asgard because the empire has a lot of people have also pointed to the fact that Valkyrie's narrative is kind of metaphorically a very indigenous narrative in the sense that she is a member of a tribe which is then wiped out by the film's sort of ultimate embodiment of colonialism which is mm -hmm. the and then she like she's one of the few survivors she goes into hiding she suffers from alcoholism and depression which very much kind of calls back to the way in which colonizers have historically consistently weaponized alcohol against indigenous peoples. Yeah. And then her whole like narrative arc is about kind of like coming to re-embrace her identity as a Valkyrie and to kind of like yeah. take up that mantle again. And like, to me, what solidifies this, which I think is like, where it gets really interesting is that that arc ends with a shot in the film of her walking away from a spaceship that is like spouting up fireworks and like she's in her full Valkyrie garb basically. And 
the great thing about that shot is that the spaceship is in the design colors of the Australian Aboriginal flag, flag which is really intentional. So, oh, like, that's you, really cool. So if you know, if you know that, it's very yeah. much like the film in this celebratory moment, saying like she's finally come to re-embrace right. her her identity, basically, in that right. fight. And that's I think where like this actually gets to me much more interesting is that there are all sorts of little moments in the film mm-hmm. that Waititi very intentionally includes as references that his audience his indigenous right. audience is supposed to get like right they're inward facing as you said exactly you like said. it's it's yeah. and to me it's very much like in, in line with the talking and thing like there's a lot of the spaceships or like the architectural or visual designs are drawn from maori or australian aboriginal designs <clears throat> and like he was very kind of intentional about doing that and being culturally sensitive mm-hmm. about that um there's also the, like the, the last component of this i want to mention that's important mm-hmm. is that in terms of like working with this community I know he very intentionally ensured that the film hired interns and crew members who were Maori and Australian Aboriginal and then asked uh, Australian Aboriginal people to do a welcome to the country ceremony. And then the last thing, and to me, this is like, because like, yeah, death of the author and all that. And so like, I, author intention, <laughs> I don't, it's, it's like, I think it's important in this case, but also limited. But I think like what really for me is the key point to this is that the film has very much been received by indigenous audiences, as far as I can tell, as an indigenous mm. film. Because like as a non-indigenous person, it's ultimately right. not my place to say this, but to me that's what right. makes it interesting, is that like there are articles by um, like Vikumana and like, uh, what's his name? Dan Taipu, I think is his name. Yeah, and he talked, like they talk about like d- describing it as like a very Maori film or a very indigenous mm-hmm. film. And so to me, the fact that it's been received in that way is kind of, what makes it most convincing as an example of not just first cinema, yes. but also fourth cinema. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's great. Um, we all know the author's dead. Um, I killed him, should be. cut his heart out, stuck it underneath my floorboards. I won't <laughs> stop beating now. Um, so anyway, uh, Victor, we just, so that was Sebastian's uh, research paper in spoken word form. I just uh, want to say, I'm so sorry. I, <laughs> that, it, I talked That was so amazing. <laughs> I loved that. All of that was amazing. Um, so Victor, uh, I don't know if you have a, a differing perspective on, um, on Thor Ragnarok, but uh, if you have, I mean, so how can we, as Sebastian noted, these uh, categories may be complicated a little bit and, you know, these hybrid notions. What do you What do you make of that? Yeah. So actually, I I I believe Sebastian. Like I believe, like that was so good. Like I I never. <laughs> this I, is the I second never... debate we've tried to had where have where it's like this the the different sides collapse into each other. Please please keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no no I just I, it's a very convincing argument that Thor Ragnarok is both first and fourth cinema, and I guess that's the whole problem that I have with the entire numbered Mm -hmm. cinema system is that you know this numbered cinema system was created in this third cinema article and it was created for like a liberational purpose right that's explicitly Mm -hmm. what it's for and also fourth cinema as well right it's for it it is along that same liberational axis so the argument that this film can be both first cinema and fourth cinema just seems to me like this numbered cinema model is kind of diluted in a sense Mm. and it kind of loses sight of the original nature of creating this system of classification, which was for, you know, revolution for change, not for, you right. know, like this Disney film, uh, like has a cameo by Matt Damon, like the main character is, uh, <laughs> I mean, 
Which Chris? Chris. Uh, Chris Hemsworth. Hemsworth. Second best Chris. Chris. No, the best. No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Let's move on. Out. We don't have time for that. That's a whole different episode. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and it's like created by Disney too, right? So if you can make the argument that this is also a fourth cinema film, mm-hmm. then that just means to me that like, that this kind of numbered system model has kind of lost its purpose because it kind of bastardizes the, like the liberational movement of these kinds of, of films and instead kind of subsumes it within the system. So you could argue that Disney can make these, you know, fourth cinema films. If Disney can make a fourth cinema film, then, you know, <laughs> Then does it even like does what then does it even matter mm-hmm. you know what uh you know what fourth cinema even does anymore right right yeah I think that um I'm not as familiar with Barclay as you are Sebastian I think you might have mentioned sort of framed the I, the idea of fourth cinema as not part of the continuum of first second third but more like a little bit standing alone and adjacent like 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 first second and third each one is getting more um like more revolutionary and more against the system. And fourth cinema is kind of, um, I think he said like, we might see like indigenous filmmakers doing, uh, like making movies that could qualify as first, second or third, and they would still be fourth, I guess. Did he say that? Am I totally off? No, no, he he totally said that. Barclay said that, but like in my mind, it's like, then why why add it to the numbered cinema model? You know, like why not just call it like indigenous film, like why, mm. why have it, you know, why, why, why add another number to the system rather than just treating it as its own entity and I'm trying to like understand it within that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great point. Like, again, this is us trying to have a debate and yet always agreeing with each other. And I totally agree <laughs> that like, this is, I, like, I find Barclay's arguments to be extremely compelling in, in a lot of ways, but I also agree that like, the way in which fourth cinema relates to Solana Singatino's original um, project is like they do kind of have different goals. And I think this relates to your idea about like if Disney can make a fourth cinema film, then what does it mean? And this also mm-hmm. relates to what you were talking about, Laura, in terms of like it kind of being a, a lateral move in, in, in relation to like the continuum here. Because like I don't think that Barclay is necessarily conceiving of a cinema that is any less radical or revolutionary than third cinema so much as his notion of what is radical and revolutionary within an indigenous context is very different than what radical and revolutionary mean to Solano Sagatino. Um, I remember I, when I took a, a Native American studies class as an undergrad, my professor once made, I think like she surmised this really beautifully and I think it relates a lot to like where Barclay's coming from, where she said mm-hmm. that like, look, in terms of, like, the notion of fighting the system, which is very much what third cinema wants to do, like, right. as indigenous, like, she was saying, like, as indigenous people, we don't want to be part of your system, like, leave us the hell out of your system, right, basically, like, right. we, and so, I think for Barclay, now, like, again, I'm not indigenous, so I don't want to speak for them and say that all of them necessarily view things that way, but I think Barclay would kind of agree with that in the sense that, for him, what is radical is the ability to kind of again, talk in and have that conversation outside of the context of the system or the battle with the system that Solana Scantino are, are trying to have. And so in that way, I think that like you, as you said, like you could make a film that is both first and fourth cinema because they're not as inherently opposed necessarily as like first and third. Like I, I don't, 
as far as hybrids go, I don't know if you can make a first third cinema hybrid. I'd love to see someone try. I think that would be really good. <laughs> I, think I, I, I feel like those two things are fundamentally opposed, but I would love to see somebody make an argument. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So I, I think, again, like I don't at all disagree with kind of any of what you're saying about uh, Victor, about kind of like the revolutionary core of third cinema here. I just think that part of it in relation to Waititi's work on Thor Ragnarok has to do with a different notion of what revolution means in a way, um, if that makes sense. I don't know if that, I don't know if I'm making sense at all in, in that argument. It does. It, no, it totally does. 100% does. I understand it, but it just still feels like really, like really neoliberal to me. Like it feels very identitarian and I'm sure that, you know, like I, it's like you, you you conceive of it as like, oh, leave us out of your system. But like, I feel like that just treats the community as this like monolithic group that doesn't have their own like personal politics or that there's not, you know, like revolutionary, like indigenous people, right? There are, there are a ton of Marxist indigenous people as well, right? So I don't know. I just feel like it, it just kind of gets into this weird space where like it kind of like it kind of makes, you know, films acceptable that, you know, it kind of like, it reads a film as liberational, even if it's, you know, produced by Disney. And I feel like that might be a problem with the model. But anyways, on your note of like a first and a third cinema film, this isn't first and third cinema film, but actually a lot of the second cinema films are, were created by, you know, people with communist leadings. Like, so like Jean-Luc Godard, you know, we were like clowning on him at the beginning of uh, the podcast. Oh, sorry, I hate to clown Jean-Luc Godard. <laughs> sorry, keep going, Victor. Which I oh, know, that was, I a, that was like... a gut response. I can't not make fun of the French duo when I hear about it. Please, oh. please continue. No, he, okay, actually, first off, did you guys know he's alive? I had no <laughs> yeah, idea. Yeah, he made a he was... movie like a year ago. <laughs> Wild, right? I thought he was long dead. I thought he was like way past their time, but anyways, <laughs> he was like, he was a Maoist and like even all of his earlier films had like Marxist influences as well and then all of his like and then in the like later period of his life like all of his films had like like extreme Maoist sentiments one film was about like this Maoist collective group of students mm -hmm. and then you know you have another you know French New Wave filmmaker Agnes Varda who's probably right. another you know singular director in that movement you know she directed right. like the Black Panther documentary she, she directed a Black uh, documentary about the Cuban revolutionary. And these are all like very Marxist, like right, the Black Panther Party was Marxist, the Cuban revolutionary, Marxist-Leninist as well. And so in that way, like, I just, I just wonder if these, if this, like this model is just too, like it just conflates them all together, right? Where it's like, you can't really make a distinction between first, second, third cinema anymore. So in that way, it means that like, like it, it kind of obscures the notion of a kind of revolutionary cinema. Yeah, I'll agree with you that I think, it, at least in terms of second cinema, um, that was, I mean, I believe that the the notion of, like, uh, the French New Wave and auteur cinema emerged as a, like, corrective to the studio system, which we don't, isn't quite as much of a thing anymore as it was in, like, the 50s, and so it's not quite, it's not quite the same world we have, uh, almost, I could be very wrong here, gosh, but, um, yeah, I think it, it, there's definitely um, some complications to the categories uh, with I mean, everything that you just said. Yeah, and I, sorry, not to, I'll, I'll, I'll end my tirade and like my rant <laughs> in that moment, but, um, and then also like, you know, when we think of third cinema, right, like probably the, you know, the, the film that comes to mind for most people is like Battle of Algiers. Mm 
Because mm-hmm. I was by this, like, that the director was like this, like, uh, rich, wealthy, white Italian man, right? So right, right. I'm like, in what ways it does that, <laughs> what, why is Battle of Algiers this, like, third cinema and this, like, you know, and then, like, Agnes Varda, she makes, like, second cinema. Like, I, mm-hmm. I wonder why there's a, why there was a distinction there and if there's really any difference. Right. That's a really good point. I, what I was going to kind of say in response to what you were saying earlier, Victor, because I, again, like, I completely agree. And I think that it's, I, like, I don't at all want to deny the fact, as you said, that, like, in some ways, like, Thor Ragnarok, for example, returning to that discussion, is absolutely a very kind of neoliberal product in many ways. Um, and I, not only do I want, not want to deny that, but I wouldn't want to kind of uh, send the message that it isn't absolutely important for us to conceive of radical and revolutionary films that are very much opposed to that, that model and that framework. Um, I think maybe some of what this comes down to is whether or not you're using this numbered cinema model in a prescriptive versus a descriptive way. Mm. Because I think in a, pres- I, I, I would be willing to maybe concede that like in a prescriptive way, it might not be valuable anymore in the sense that like, it's, as you said, like things have changed so much and it's like, again, like where, like where are these lines being drawn as a thing? And as a guideline for filmmakers moving forward, I don't know how valuable it necessarily is if we want to truly make, uh, you know, radical and revolutionary films. I think it might still, I guess that's again why I kind of returned to Thor Ragnarok as my key example. I think it does have value as a descriptive model in the sense of looking at a film like that and this model provides us a way, a, a lens to go, okay, I can understand it, yes, as the product of this awful, awful system. <laughs> but I can also, and you're know, using the first cinema lens there, but also by using the fourth cinema lens, I can under like I can better understand, for example, why, as an example, like so many indigenous commentators have talked about the film and embraced it as mm-hmm. as their film in a way, um, and you know, and I can also better understand like the some of the practices, uh, filmmaking practices that Waititi incorporated into making that film. And so, yeah. to me, it's like there's a difference between it as sort of uh, kind of a revolutionary sort of manifesto, which is where this all originates from versus what I think it's become, which is something that's valuable for historians and theorists as a better way to understand modes of filmmaking and modes of of film practices and receptions, if that makes any sense. No, that's 100% makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree. I like that. I mean, uh, all right, what a debate. Uh, No. Uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about how like um, these things like uh, like Truffaut, I think Truffaut who wrote the Politique des Auteurs, which was the like where we get auteur, auteurism from, which I think kind of for Solanus Gattino defined the second cinema. Um, uh, and then also then towards the third cinema, these like man, these prescriptive manifestos tend to over time become more descriptive. And I wonder whether that's I mean, is that a good thing? Like, I, I don't know. That's a whole other question. But um, here's my thing. I think. Sorry, wait. No, please, please, please. Okay. Please. In my opinion, like, I don't see a value in a descriptive system so much as I see a value in like this prescriptive system because, mm-hmm. for me at least, I'm as someone who you know is interested in like you know changing this like fucked up world. Like, mm-hmm. I want to 
I want to I want to watch cinema and I want to support cinema that will change the world. Like I don't want mm-hmm. to just I don't want to just see the world as it is, which is um you know what uh, Solanus and Gatina say is like not third cinema. I want to you know I want to make sure that I'm not just like being subsumed with this, within the system. I want to make cinema that actually changes and moves us forward. I guess, I guess that's my case, which yes. I see that value in a descript, a descriptive system, especially when it comes to like historicizing cinema, like Sebastian said. But for me, it's like, I, I'm only looking forward to the future, I guess, mm-hmm. and then building upon the past. Yeah. yeah. I, oh, sorry, what I was gonna respond to that, because I, I completely agree. And I think it's absolutely essential, both in terms of like, for those of us who are interested in going to, to filmmaking, or those of us who are interested in going to scholarship and doing historical or theoretical work. I think like on both fronts, what you're talking about is incredibly important is to try to, uh, you know, create works that disrupts the awful system that we live in and tries to imagine a a better future in it. Uh, I guess to me at least like where a descriptive system has value in that is trying to understand where we've been, where we've come from and therefore where we can go from here is the thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so again, like to me, that's that's the core of it is that if we don't want to repeat the same mistakes, I think there's value in looking at these efforts of these filmmakers to kind of create this, this, this numbered cinema model and to go, okay, this is what worked, this is what didn't work, and this is a lens I can use to understand both past work that I'm drawing from, but also my own work is the thing. Um, because a lot of what it comes down to is at the, at the core of it, like if I, if I had to define like what the numbered cinema system is ultimately about, I feel like it's about modes of filmmaking. It's about, you know, is mm. your filmmaking capitalist? Is it community oriented? Is it author driven? And so to me, it's not, it's by far in a way, like not the only framework I think that is valuable to use, but I think it is valuable in the sense that it's one way to look at both past work and your own work and to go, okay, what am I doing? How do I build on this? Where do we go from here? That was really beautifully put both of you. Um, Can I just say that like, these are two of the quietest guys in our class. And every time either of them speaks up, it's like amazing. They always just drop bomb, it's just bombshells. So like, uh, it's so cool to hear both of you like, talk about this. Uh, um, so to close out, um, I guess, because we're, you know, running out of time. Um, could we, I wonder if we could look, consider uh, something that came up in, in my, like the episode that I was in before, which was, uh, does this have a function or use outside of like academia or the classroom? Uh, yes or no, and why is that important? And also, uh, where, what can we do moving forward? If we're keeping this system or if we're leaving it behind, how do we best you know, what's the best way to move forward here? Yeah, I mean, kind of building off of uh, what I was just talking about, I think that mm-hmm. it, I think it, I would say like at the current moment, as I understand it, I don't necessarily think that like third cinema is talked that much outside the mm-hmm. classroom anymore, at least not in, in this country. I don't at all want to presume other national contexts or experiences here. But like the sense I get is that like within like third cinema is in America pretty much confined to the classroom. Mm-hmm. And it's often like in, even in then in a very modular way where it's like, okay, we're going to spend a week talking about this and then never bring it up again. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so I think like at the moment, no, it doesn't have that sort of value, but I think that's kind of a problem that I think that in fact, it, 
would be valuable for filmmakers both in this country and everywhere else also to uh, have a sense of the system, again, just in terms of applying it to their own filmmaking practices. And also this is valuable for scholars as well in terms of how we write about these films, that mm -hmm. it's, it's one lens through which we can try to understand and historicize them as, as Victor was pointing out. Um, and so I think that to me, at least that's one of the arguments for why it would be worth keeping around is to try to push it more outside the classroom. Um, and in some ways to try to make it less digestible to the classroom, because again, if its purpose is to try to help us create radical and revolutionary work, it shouldn't be entirely digestible to, uh, you know, academic institutions necessarily. And so I don't know, that's not, I don't know if that's a full thought necessarily, but those are some of my kind of concluding ideas in response to what you were saying, Laura. That's really well put. Victor, what do you think? I guess for me, I guess, I don't know, I don't know if this is, I, I don't know, I feel weird saying this as like a, you know, a cinema studies major, I, uh, you know, cinema studies grad student now. Hey, but, there you go. <laughs> in the past, like, year or two, like, I've actually grown, like, really disillusioned with, like, cinema as a, rev like, cinema, like a, revol cinema with revolutionary potential, because, mm -hmm. Ever since, you know, also including that, you know, the Solanus and Giottino reading, ever since I read that, you know, that the system has like a, uh, the, the, the degree of acceptable protest within the system is much more than we think. I, I've, I've not been able to stop thinking, like, I haven't been able to stop thinking about that. And like, I just wonder like how much of the cinema that we see is so, you know, so like new and so groundbreaking, you know, like, like, for example, like of a Battle of Algiers, like that is a cinema that still was nominated for an Oscar, you know, which is like pretty much <laughs> the epitome of like yeah. being accepted by a bourgeoisie culture. Mm -hmm. And so, my, and like, I don't even know in the modern day, right, in 2021, like where is third cinema being made? Like I have no, like where, I have no idea. And I don't really see, I, don't, I haven't really seen any films that are, that is really interested in questioning the deep, the deeply rooted, you know, economic, political, social ideology that, you know, that we, of the world that we live in. So I guess this system and this model, I feel like for me kind of tries to ascribe this kind of, tries, it's too optimistic for me. And it kind of just, mm. it, it makes me feel like, uh, we're trying to read these films as being, as being more valuable than they actually are to like, uh, a future, I guess. It's just really like pessimistic and really Jesus like- Christ. <laughs> well, no, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, <laughs> no, not to invalidate your comments. Please keep going. No, no, I will say though that like, instead of cinema, like I feel like for me, I see the potential of like media to be revolutionary. I see mm -hmm. that happening more in other spaces outside of the film industry, outside of cinema. Like, so I feel like like in uh, Solanus, they talk about how like didactic films or like films that teach you how to use a gun, like that could be considered revolutionary cinema. So for me, it's like, I feel like probably the most revolutionary media that's gonna come out is gonna be like a YouTube video or like a TikTok even, or like something that, like a social media post that gets you to question the world around you. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then I also, I also wanted to like shout out, I guess an organization that is kind of doing that, which is called Means TV. And they're like this really cool, like new streaming platform. And they, uh, they, they like all the employees, they like share voting and economic rights and they all share the profits. 
and they they create this really cool like anti-capitalist anti-establishment like media and i feel like that kind of work is the mm -hmm. kind of work that's gonna actually lead to a better future i guess so i guess to leave it on a positive i feel like there are people in <laughs> change and uh and there is hope for the world I think. That's lovely. <laughs> uh, great turnaround there, Victor. Um, no, I think, oh, I, I would argue that Solanus and Gattino would say that that is the, the 21st century version of third cinema. Like, um, that is where their, uh, their project has moved um, into those kinds of spaces. So I don't know if that necessarily I mean, it, it just depends on what we mean by cinema. And if we mean by cinema as like thing that is two hours long to show in a movie theater than but um i also think i mean it's interesting i i'm so sorry that you're disillusioned at such a at such a young age i mean same but like um, are we young anymore i feel like <laughs> who knows but um i mean i think the thing about potentially one of the issues of third cinema is that yeah i don't think any there's no single film that's going to kickstart the revolution it's just not how things work. Um, and I do think though, there's, I mean, there's, we fall into the danger of like the fault the, the dichotomy of like either this is revolutionary or it is oppress oppressive or it is, I mean, I think that there are ways to, again, nothing's going to kickstart the revolution, but um, there are movies that, I mean, achieve things that are good. <laughs> wow, that like started well and it ended badly. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things I do like about the numbered system is that it, I mean, uh, no, uh, no, but things like about the designation of fourth cinema, because I think you make a really good point about how, how um, like porous these categories are uh, between first, second, and third cinema. But understanding with fourth cinema that these that these can exist alongside each other. I think it is a helpful framework um, to understand, like, uh, to understand how these different, these different descriptive, descriptively how these different groups, um, like, maybe make movies and and how they're received and stuff. Uh, I think you're both right. I don't know. Oh gosh, this is the worst part. Uh, I think I think both of you make really good points. Can I, before you make a final decision, can I? Yes. I want to drop the pretense and interject here, and I say that I, at this point, I I almost fullheartedly agree with Victor in the sense <laughs> that I, I guess here's like as as you're saying, I think that as kind of like compartmentalized, like as if you kind of separate them from the broader numbered cinema model, I think like third cinema as an idea as developed by Solanus Gandino and fourth cinema as an idea by Barry Barclay are still really valuable, especially mm. in a descriptive way, as you said, in terms of figuring out like, okay, if no individual film is gonna kickstart the revolution, like there's still helpful ways for us to understand how people respond to these films and how people still find meaning and maybe some degree of kind of radical interpretation in them, even mm -hmm. if they aren't like, this single thing that's going to kind of flip the switch necessarily. Um, yeah. And so in that sense, like I, I, I find them still valuable there. I don't know if as, as parts of this broader system, how I'm, I'm, I'm uncertain about that. And I'm very swayed by a lot of Victor's arguments here, which is not surprising because Victor's, you know, he, he talks very compellingly about it and he's yeah. very, 
very intelligent. Can I, can, can I just say something real fast? I Please. actually, I actually really like the numbered system model. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we're all confused, guys. What am I supposed to think? Shit. <laughs> that was holy shit. Okay, because like, I was uh, you convinced me. Like, uh, oh my god, wow. <laughs> Wow. That was hysterical. <laughs> All right. You know what? We're, co yeah. <laughs> I, I think that I do think, um, to, to try to close this out, um, Victor, that was amazing. Uh, I do think that the numbered system has very, uh, despite what Victor said when he was lying, uh, the numbered system has good, uh, has a lot of use as a descriptive framework um and even if especially if we can move beyond like all right and this is the week we spend on third cinema i, I would love to see like not just in the field of filmmakers but like scholars for example like i would love to see scholars apply like if they're if we're going to make some use of this model like applying it more frequently and much more being much more considerate of like okay like what mode of filmmaking might this fall under? Like, how can we understand it in relation to, you know, is it a capitalist mode? Is it author-driven? Is it revolutionary? Is it community-driven, et cetera? Like, I, I think that that's, I feel like I don't see that enough in the sort of film text that we read. And I think that could be a useful, I think that's why I would, part of why I would argue to keep this. I think that's like a useful thing that I'd like to see more scholars do. Yeah, no, yeah. And and just, just to clarify, I, I I like the numbers to some, but I still stand by the fact that I think uh, more films fall under the first and second mm -hmm. designation than they do the third. Oh, yeah. But I, I mean, I, I, absolutely. I, I see the third cinema category as a great, like, means of gatekeeping, I guess, like, in a good way, like, mm. what is actually, you know, worthwhile, film. like, what, what is actually worthwhile to the future, I guess. For sure. Wow. Biggest plot twist in, <laughs> in history. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Media Literate. As with every episode of this podcast, we're going to sign off today with another segment of We Need to Talk About Kevin. We need to talk about Kevin. Sir, so we're going to call up Kevin right now and ask yes. him the only real question that matters in the history of media space. <laughs> Has he finally watched Twilight? <laughs> Excellent. I'm excited. I mean, he better have. We've asked him twice at this We've point. We've asked him twice now. At this point, it's just, it's just rude. Hello? Hi, Kevin. It's Sebastian. How are you? How's it going? I'm good. I have Laura and Victor here with me. Hey, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. <laughs> hey, how's it going? How's it going? Good. So we have a very important question for you. Uh, there's a lot that rides on this answer. Okay. Have you? Right, I'm ready. Have you finally watched Twilight? Oh, I mean, I thought. You know, it's funny you asked that. It's funny. So I, I did not yet. Yet. Kevin, we've been over this. Gee, oh my God. I have, a, I have a story. I have a story about that. Oh boy. Okay. So, so I'm, uh, I'm playing video game. I'm playing Call of Duty last night with <laughs> my uh, little fraternity brothers. And I, I was like, hey guys, 
center of that Venn diagram. Us and, and the Kent State fraternity guys. Twilight in the middle. I love it. This is, <laughs> this is incredible. It is a true cultural um, <laughs> monolith. Kevin, I, I, reaching, I reaching a wide range of audiences. Yeah, I, it's incredible. I expect to say this today, but the Penn State fraternity guys are 100% correct on this, and you need to, <laughs> you need to rectify this right now. And I have a pitch for you, Kevin, as to why you should ASAP watch Twilight. Okay. Okay. So, right, let's hear it. so here's my pitch. I I understand your reticence about watching the first film. I I disagree with it, but I understand it. However, if yeah. you watch the first Twilight film you get the privilege of then watching the second Twilight film. <laughs> now, the thing uh, about it right. is, so one, it's, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a marvelous film. One of the all-time mm. greats. But what makes it so great <laughs> is that in the last 20 minutes, you get Michael Sheen as, what's his character's name, Laura? Is it Arrow? Arrow? It's either Arrow or Aro. Who knows? I, yeah, I don't know. So you get Arrow Aro, Michael Sheen, <laughs> giving what I can only describe as a transcendent Oscar. No, it's beyond Oscar worthy. It is one of the, it's, it is this brand. One of the great, you think about Brando, you think about Orson Welles, you think Orson about Michael Sheen and New Moon. Okay. <laughs> exactly. It is, he is, I, I don't think chewing the scenery um, describes it sufficiently, but he's, He's gobbling it right up. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> there is no more scenery left at the end of the film. It is Michael Sheen the Black Void. So I think you owe it to yourself to experience what truly transcendent acting looks like. So please watch Twilight so you can then watch New Moon. And then we yeah. can try to convince you to watch the other ones. But really, New Moon is, is where this, this, the franchise peaks. Yeah. I mean, these are these are pretty bold statements. I mean, these are <laughs> high comparisons you're making here. So I, I, I have to say, you sparked my interest. You sparked my interest <laughs> a bit more. So Kevin, if for nothing else, it's worth it for Michael Sheen's laugh, which mm -hmm. I, I can't even imitate. But he he does this amazing. It's it's perfection. It's so, Chef's kiss personified. <laughs> so please con consider this. I, it will it will change your life forever. All right, all right. I'll I'll, uh, I'll think about it. There, there's a, that's pretty high praise. Getting pressure from all so all social circles of mine. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Yeah. Maybe, Let maybe us know and uh, we'll dive in. Yeah, we'll check in again. So I was going to say, Kevin, my question is when we call you, well, it won't necessarily be the three of us, but when the next hosts call you in a few weeks and ask you if you've seen Twilight and New Moon, I I. I <laughs> You're going to say yes, right? I really hope so. I, I, this means a lot to me. Oh, man. Twilight and New Moon now. God, that might. <laughs> <laughs> the agenda's piling up. Great. Well, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Sounds good. I, I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye, Kevin. Bye, Kevin. Hugs and kisses to the Penn State guys. That's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. Media Literate is a collaborative podcast. 
produced by Colton Elzey, Sebastian Wurzreiner, Laura Broman, Kim Henry, and Julia Camus. Thanks again to this week's hosts, Sebastian, Laura, and Victor Wu. Charlotte Skurlock edited this week's episode. Our theme music is Soft Feeling by Chiel, and our logo was created by Julia. <laughs>